We're continuing on with our emphasis on the transforming power of life with God, and we're focusing once again as our starting point on Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 as we are working our way through the fruit of the Spirit, and the focus this evening is on what it means to pray for faithfulness. And as we've noted in our study in Galatians, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh come from our fallen nature and that battle that continues as we are sanctified and as we grow in the likeness of Christ as long as we live here on this earth. And when we abide, we will produce fruit. God will produce fruit through us. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to progressively conform us to the image of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit produces that spiritual fruit in our lives when we submit to the power of God. And this is where the fruit of the Spirit really comes in. Fruit is a spiritual result of growth. So if you think about it all put together, we abide, we grow, and God produces fruit through us. If we're not abiding, we're going to short-circuit the process. And if we're not growing, certainly something is wrong. And we should be seeing fruit produced in our lives more and more as we go along. And the fruit of the Spirit comprises the qualities or the characteristics that God brings about in us as we grow in maturity. So we've already thought about love, joy, peace, uh, patience or long-suffering, kindness, goodness. And now uh, I want to think about faithfulness tonight. And faithfulness is the quality or attribute that is applied in Scripture to both God and people. And the scripture very plainly states that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. So let me just give you a a very general definition of what I think faithfulness is from a biblical standpoint. I think faithfulness is a steadfastness. Uh, It means to be dedicated uh, to the things of God, to be dependable, and to be trustworthy in our life with God as well as in our service to Him. Faithfulness is derived Uh, from a word that means to trust or to believe, and then the fruit of faithfulness is the response of us trusting or believing. I mentioned the name uh, William Tyndale recently, and he might be be familiar to some of you from church history, but he was born around 1490 AD in England. He was a man who was educated at the University of Oxford, and he became an instructor at Cambridge. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, Western Christendom by and large uh, responded and adhered to the Roman Catholic Church. But that, of course, changed drastically in the year 1517 when Martin Luther, a German monk and theologian, publicly disputed actions and practices within the Catholic hierarchy. And he uh, posted his publication of the 95 Theses and thus began the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation gave an opening to others who saw the need to reform the church and for things to change. And Luther had spearheaded that Protestant movement uh, for close to a decade when along came the man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale uh, began to write theological treatises and uh, propositions of his own. Much of Luther's body of work Uh, was actually consumed and adopted by Tyndale. 
Tyndale had a very strong conviction that the Bible alone should determine the practices and the doctrine of the church. But at the heart of what he believed is that everybody should be able to read the Bible for themselves. And that was a radical idea at that time because the church liked to keep it under control because if they could control the narrative, they could control what people believed. And if they can control what people believed, then they could control what they did. So Tyndale began working on a translation of the New Testament directly from the Greek in 1523. Uh, The translation was met with very stringent opposition by Henry VIII as well as other ecclesiastical officials. And uh, Tyndale was also opposed, uh, which didn't help him, to the annulment of Henry VIII's marriage. And that put him in a position of opposition as well. But at any rate, the church authorities in England prevented him from translating the Bible. So he actually had to make his way to Germany to continue his work. He completed his translation in 1525, and it was printed. And the first copies were smuggled into England in 1526. When he finished, Tyndale began working also on the Old Testament. But in 1535, he was betrayed and arrested and found himself charged and convicted with heresy. On October the 6th of 1536, he was strangled and his body was burned at the stake. At the time of his death, 18,000 copies of the New Testament had been printed. Tyndale, by any measure, was a faithful man. His story is a dramatic one that speaks to the effect of what our faithfulness can have on other people, even generationally, uh, in what he did to get the Word of God so that we have an English Bible before us today. We owe a, a great debt of gratitude to people like William Tyndale. And we want to be faithful, and it might not be in something that is as dramatic as that, or as uh, kingdom impacting as that, but yet we can make a difference in whatever corner of the world that God puts us in, whatever uh, responsibilities he gives to us so that we can be faithful and make a difference for him. Now, anytime we start talking about faithfulness, we have to think about the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of God specifically speaks to the constancy of God as it relates to his creation. Uh, to think about how God is always faithful to what he has made and to the promises that he has given. Psalm 36 and verse 5 says, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. Psalm 89 and verse 1 and 2 says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. And then Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 and verse 22 and 23 said, Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So as we think about the faithfulness of God, God is faithful to forgive. Uh, He shows mercy to us. He sympathizes when we have problems He cares about our needs. God delivers us when we face temptation and we cry out to him for help. God is faithful to keep us in this life and God will be faithful to keep us into the next as well. So I want us to think about 
faithfulness from a biblical standpoint and think about three perspectives of faithfulness that I think will help us understand it better. And the first is the goodness of Jesus is our model for faithfulness. The goodness of Jesus is our model for faithfulness. Now, with the faithfulness of God our Father as the backdrop of all of this, and the only right response being our faithfulness as we live for Him, we now look to Jesus and His goodness as our model for faithfulness. Now, the Bible's got all kinds of examples of faithfulness. We could go on for for days talking about the different examples of faithfulness. In the Old Testament, we learn of people like Abel and Enoch, Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and Gideon and uh, Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. So many different examples of people uh, who, even though they had shortcomings because they were human beings, are examples of faithfulness to us. And then in the New Testament, we learn of examples of the apostles, of uh, men like Paul and Timothy and Titus and many faithful women who served in kingdom work and supported the work of mission expansion. And all these are good examples. But what we need to realize is that Jesus is the supreme example of faithfulness. The following verses are translated typically as faith in Christ rather than Christ's faithfulness. But I want us to think about how those two come together. Christ's faithfulness along with our faith in Christ. And here's several examples of these verses in the scripture that point to Christ as the reliable object of our faith. Romans 3.22 says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2 and verse 16 says this was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Philippians 3 and verse 9 says not having a righteousness of my own from the law but one that is through faith in Christ. So I want you to think about it this way. Christ and his faithfulness is, are the reliable object of our faith. So in other words, we're not just having faith like in a general, uh, unclear kind of a way. It's not our faith that does anything. It's our faith in Christ who is the reliable object of our faith. So when we exercise faith in Jesus, we are exercising faith in the one who is always faithful. And in salvation and sanctification, our faithfulness are dependent on on the faithfulness of Christ himself. Our faith is anchored in the faithfulness of Christ. So our salvation is dependent on it. When you're declared righteous, your faith in him based on the faithfulness of Jesus, when you are sanctified... Your spiritual growth is dependent on your faith in Christ and his faithfulness and then the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to produce fruit as you abide, you grow, and then God produces fruit in you. Listen to the way Hebrews 3 and verse 1 and 2 says it. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. Now, this is a fascinating discussion in Hebrews chapter 3 that, once again, we could spend a lot of time on. But I want you to think about the backdrop of what was going on as we think about Christ 
as the reliable object of our faith. The believers the writer of Hebrews were, were writing to were facing persecution even to the point of death. Now, you think about being in a situation where if you are faithful to Jesus, it can cost you your life. We're generally not to that point in this country yet, but there are many people around the world that are finding themselves in exactly that situation simply because they believe in Jesus. So the writer, in order to inspire them toward faithfulness, encouraged them to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. So one of the main themes of Hebrews, which is the most Old Testament book of the New Testament, is to tell the people to keep moving forward. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're facing, keep moving forward and you be faithful. But the way that you can be faithful is if you put your focus on the one and you keep your eyes fixed on the one who is the reliable object of your faith. Now, here's how he does this in Hebrews chapter 3. He does so by contrasting the faithfulness of Jesus with the faithfulness of Moses. Moses was a faithful member of God's house. Not a perfect one, but a faithful one. He obeyed God. He led the people of Israel. He was the conduit through which the law came to them. He was the arbiter of so many things of the nation as it formed. But he was only a man. Whereas Moses was a faithful member of God's house, Jesus is the faithful builder of God's house. But not only is Jesus the faithful builder of God's house, Jesus is also the cornerstone of the building. It all rests on him. Moses was a faithful steward of God's house. So in other words, he managed the things of God as he led the people of God. He, he was in charge of helping them and leading them. But Jesus is the faithful son. And there's a big difference between being a faithful steward, which is what we ultimately want to be, and actually being the faithful son as Jesus is. Moses gave a faithful testimony of God and his goodness to the people and of his mercy to the people. Jesus is actually the embodiment of the testimony. He, he's actually the fulfillment of the testimony. Moses was a great leader ordained of God and he spoke on behalf of the people. Jesus is the standard. And here's what verse 6 says. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. So what's he saying? Look to Jesus. No matter how hard it gets, keep pressing on. He's the standard. He is our model for faithfulness. Think about Revelation 19 where John sees a vision of Jesus as the exalted king of kings leaving heaven to return to earth. And John says in Revelation 19 and verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called, listen, faithful and true. With justice he judges and he wages war. So John, looking in the future when Jesus is going to return victoriously, he says, this is the one that I see in my vision. I see the one who is faithful and true. 
the one who is our model for faithfulness. Faithful and true appear only that time in the scripture together in this way. Faithful means characterized by steadfast affection or allegiance. True means truthful or characterized by expressing the truth. So Jesus is the steadfast embodiment of the truth. And as I've already stated several times, the reliable object of our faith and the one that we could depend on. He is our model for faithfulness. But then second, the grace of God is our means of faithfulness. Now, faithfulness carries with it the idea of being consistent with what is real or actual. And the idea of us being faithful uh, in a reproduction of the original, in a sense. So we think about being loyal and constant and steadfast and, and staunch. But for us as followers of Jesus, faithfulness occurs when we have the grace of God in our lives and Jesus reproduces his faithfulness in us as we grow and are transformed. So think about it this way. Faithfulness has both an active and a passive sense or use. This is what I mean. In the active sense, it refers to faith, belief, or trust. Like you're actually putting your full weight down on Jesus because he's trustworthy. In the passive sense, it speaks to the reliability of the one in which we're putting our faith. So being faithful is the fruit of having faith. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees at one point in his ministry for their lack of faithfulness. And the reason was their faith was not in God. Their faith was in the law. Their faith was in the system of works. And Jesus said to them, listen, you're, you're experts in the law, but you're neglecting the more weighty matters, including justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what was Jesus doing? Just, Jesus was drawing a parallel and he was saying, listen, if you're putting your trust in anything other than the one true living God and in me, his son, then it's the wrong object of your faith. And you're not going to be faithful. You're not going to live with justice. You're not going to experience mercy because you're trying to focus on something else. I think about Daniel in the Old Testament who had faith in and was devoted to the Lord. He's a good example of what I'm trying to communicate here, that we have faith in, but then we are devoted to because of God's work and God's grace as the means of faithfulness in our lives. So God holds us responsible to what he has called us to do, but God does not hold us responsible for the results of what he has called us to do. This is a very important distinction. I want to uh, focus on here just for a moment. And the reason I want to focus on it is sometimes we can get discouraged as we serve Jesus. I mean, you serve him long enough and you, you continue in ministry and you continue serving in the church and you continue being faithful. And the fact is, things just don't always break your way. I mean, sometimes you go through bad experiences, maybe with people who are also professing believers or you go through challenging circumstances in life. And sometimes the weight is just heavy. And you're thinking, Lord, I've tried to be faithful the best I knew how, but the results haven't necessarily been what I would have wanted them to be. 
And when we start trying to draw that parallel, then we take on something as our responsibility that was never our responsibility to begin with. God does not hold us responsible for the results if we're seeking to be faithful to him and live for him. He holds us responsible for being faithful and seeking to live for him. So it comes back to what kind of steward we are. And think about the parable of the talents. It's not up to us if we get one talent or three talents or five talents. It's God that decides that. What it's up to us to do is to use whatever we've been given and invest it so that we might be useful to God. And then if God decides to double it or triple it or whatever else in terms of spiritual and and the type of blessings that he'll give to us as we are faithful to him, that's up to him. So let me state it uh, another way. Faithfulness is your responsibility. Results are God's responsibility. And that's why when people ask me, what is your definition of success? And that's a question that comes up more than you would think as it relates to Christian leadership and, and uh, things along those lines. What's your defini- definition of success? And I immediately say, my definition of success is faithfulness. Because I can't control the outcome. I can't control the results. All I can do is be a good steward. I can be a good member of God's household. And and it's the same with you. Ultimately, you can't control what happens with your family even. But what you can influence is how you serve them and the example that you give to them and the prayers that you pray for them and the life that you live with them. You can do your part and then... The rest is up to their response to God and then what God ultimately does through them. So maybe you're feeling a little bit discouraged right now because you've been serving the Lord faithfully in some area. I just want to take the pressure off of you and say the results aren't up to you. Faithfulness is up to you. And faithfulness ultimately is success. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 through 8 stresses this very idea. 1 Corinthians 3 beginning in verse 5 It says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you have believed. And each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field or God's building. So he says, listen, it's not ultimately about Apollos. It's not ultimately about Paul. We're just servants through whom you've believed. He says, I planted Apollos water, but it was God who gave the growth. And this brings me back to the very heart of this point, that the grace of God is our means of faithfulness. It was the grace that God saved us with. It's the grace by which we serve, and it's the grace of God that will produce the results through our faithfulness to him. A servant should be faithful to God. I read a story years ago, and I'm certain I've shared it somewhere along the way here before, but I want to share it again. Uh, There's a story that is told of an older preacher who was rebuked by some people in his church for lack of results. And they said to him, there's only been one person added to this church in a whole year, And he's just a boy. The preacher said with tears in his eyes, I feel it all, but God knows I have tried to do my duty. 
after everyone left the church that day, the boy that they were referencing came up to him and said, do you think if I worked hard that I could be a preacher or a missionary someday? And the preacher said, yes, I think you'll become a preacher. Years later, an aged missionary returned to London from Africa. Many souls have been added to the kingdom through his faithfulness. Robert Moffat was his name, and he was the little boy who had once spoken to that old preacher and asked him if he thought he could be useful to God. Many times we are measuring success in a very short time frame, and God sees the big picture. There, there might be something as simple as a conversation that you have with somebody that encourages them to consider coming to faith in Christ. And they don't come to faith in Christ in that moment when you're sharing the gospel with them. It might take three or four more people sharing with them. It might take circumstances of life developing. It might take any number of things until finally they come to Christ. And you might not ever even know that they got saved. But yet God used you to begin that conversation in their life so that they can know about the gospel. It might be that you teach in a children's Sunday school Bible fellowship class and you are shaping a life that somewhere along the way may move off somewhere and you don't even know the rest of the story about their life, but you had a small contribution to contribute to that young child's life and they end up being a faithful servant of God, maybe not known to the world, but just faithful to the Lord, faithful to their family, faithful to the church. You see, we underestimate the contributions that we make and what God can do with that through his grace. And may the Lord help us be faithful with the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that he has given us. And we're all called to a general faithfulness, of course, prayer and the word, worship and giving and love and everything that's in keeping with scripture. But faithfulness is also seen in God's specific call on our lives. And you can only be faithful to what and who God has called you to be. Here's another error that we make sometimes. We compare somebody else's life to ours. And we hold our life up to their life. Well, God's gifted them in a totally different way. He's given them different experiences and opportunities than he's given you. He's put them in different situations. Maybe you don't have the same spiritual gifts. And you're comparing apples and oranges. And you're not supposed to be comparing at all. All you're supposed to be doing is be faithful. So don't question what it is that God has given to you. Just use what he's given to you. He made you uniquely. He saved you with a specific purpose. And you can only be faithful to who and what God has called you to be. You are not responsible for what God has called someone else to be or who he's called them to be. The grace of God is the means of our faithfulness. And this takes the pressure off of, of us as well. Our responsibility is to abide. It's not as though God saves us by grace and he says, now do the best you can. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, by his blood, saves us and we're declared righteous in him. The spirit of God comes to indwell us. The word of God guides us and we abide and we submit and we obey. And we obey because we want to be faithful, not so we can be more saved, but because we have been saved and we want to see fruit born out in our lives. And then third, the glory of God is our motivation for faithfulness. The glory of God is our motivation for faithfulness. 
And I go now to Colossians 3 and verse 23 and 24, which will probably be familiar to most of you as well. Whatever you do, Colossians 3 and verse 23, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Now, what is a motivation? Well, a motivation speaks to an emotion, a desire, a need, or an impulse of some kind that propels you to action. And and let me just state right up front here, in our fallen nature, even in a redeemed sense, we all struggle with mixed motivations. Everybody does from time to time. We have to ask the Lord to help us with our motivations. We We have to humble ourselves before the Lord and ask him to help us understand why we're doing what we're doing. Because sometimes we can slip off into that mode of doing things so that other people will notice us or so that other people will need us or so that other people will depend on us. All those things are poor motivations for faithfulness. We want to be faithful because God has called us to be faithful and they are important to everything that we do. The Bible makes it clear that all of the ways of a man seem right in his own sight. But Proverbs 16 and verse 2 says that the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows why we're doing what we're doing. He knows whether it's from humility or from pride. And what you value in your life is what you will invest your life in. Let me say that again. What you value in your life is what you will invest your life in. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you value something, you're going to invest your life in it. And it's going to be important to you. And then I would say that what you focus on in life will determine what you pursue in life. And that's why the scripture uses the language of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, focusing on him. What are we focusing on? We are focusing on the glory of God because he's shown his grace to us. He's been good to us through his son. And we want to have loyalties that are not divided. You cannot have divided loyalties and be faithful to God. Jesus said that no one can serve two masters. No one is able to serve both God and possessions or God and mammon. So you've got to decide what your loyalties are and where they lie. Bringing glory to God is our primary motivation. Now, some of you in the business world or who read on leadership um, might have uh, heard the name Simon Sinek, um, is the way I say it at least, and uh, he wrote a well-known business book in the past few years that popularized the question, what is your why? You probably heard that language even if you didn't read the book um, because it's it's been very uh, popularized and common. And he basically says, start with your why and that'll help you focus on where you're going and what you want to accomplish. It's not a Christian book. It's not anything to do with anything other than just talking about priorities and focus in life. But it's really good because it's true. So I just ask you tonight in a spiritual sense, what is your why? Why do you do what you do? Why do you want to be faithful? You want other people to pat you on the back or or do you feel some sense of guilt or is it just obligation or you think you're going to get good stuff from it? I mean, what's your motive? what's your why? Your why should be the glory of God. And faith gives glory to God because faith 
is the answer to God's faithfulness. Faith gives glory to God because faith is the answer to God's faithfulness. It's said of Abraham, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So when you believe, what you are doing is you are magnifying the faithfulness of God and you're giving glory to Him. That's what you're doing. Now, I think about the tension that is between uh, Paul's discussion of justification by faith in the book of Romans and then James uh, in his clear declaration that faith without works is dead. And some have thought that they're contradicting one another in some way. They're not contradicting one another at all. They're totally complementing one another. And, and what they're saying is, when you are justified by faith and you're declared righteous and you're covered by the blood of Jesus, the natural outworking of the whole deal is that you're going to have works of faith. You're going to bear fruit. And your faithfulness is going to magnify the faithfulness of God and it's going to give glory to Him. So faithfulness is believing that God is who He says He is and then continuing to believe that no matter what life brings your way. In fact, it is much easier to be faithful when everything is breaking your way. But when you really get tested, that's where you find out where your faith lies. That's where you find out about the resolve of what you believe. Hebrews 10.23 says, Hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Just hold on to it tight. Just keep pressing on. Remember, that's the message of Hebrews. Persecuted people, keep pressing on. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Hold on to it unswervingly. This hope that you profess, lock in on it. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Let me say it to you another way. God can be counted on. He's always dependable. He's never broken a promise. He'll never break a promise. He can be counted on. There's a man called uh, Phineas in the Old Testament who was passionate for God's glory. Numbers 24 tells the story of two oracles of Balaam uh, spoken of God's covenant relationship with Israel. The last two are prophetic and pointed to Israel's future kingdom and victory in the promised land. And Numbers 24 and verse 17 says, I see him, but now I behold him, but not near and then he says this, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Now, why would I read Numbers 24 and 4, in verse 17? What's that got to do with faithfulness? What it's got to do with it is the one who spoke the oracle didn't really know it, but he was prophesying about the Messiah. And Jesus' birth was marked by the appearance of the star, of course, as recorded in Matthew chapter 2. And, and in Revelation 22, he's referred to as the bright and the morning star. And then here's what Numbers 25 and verse 11 says. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Phineas had a great zeal for the Lord to see God's name honored. And God is faithful and true. He can be trusted and we should obey him. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief learns at last 
that she has pleased him whom she was created to please, there will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it was her doing. And so it is with us as we think about standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Only through Jesus are we going to stand firm in that appearance and be approved by him. And so we follow the admonition of Scripture, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's not about waiting for some single glorious event in your life. Sin, darkness, the evil one will all attack you, trying to convince you that your life is ordinary and your life is insignificant and your life is inglorious and it doesn't really ultimately matter. But what we can learn to do every moment of life is to focus on God's glory, that God is here with us right now in any measure of life that we live now or for eternity is a glorious life. And the very fact that the presence of God is with us and in us and through us in the Holy Spirit makes it so. So you can bring glory to God whether you're paying your bills or you're having coffee with a friend or you're talking with people in your neighborhood, or you're reading the Bible, or whatever you're doing. You can bring glory to Him, and you can be thankful. And what I would say to you is don't miss out on the big portions of your life looking for that glorious moment, because it might be that what you thought was inglorious is actually glorious, because it's for the Lord. And the glory of God is our motivation for faithfulness. So I say to you in closing, you ought to pray for faithfulness and look around you and note the fruit of somebody else's faithfulness in your life. I began the message tonight with a story about William Tyndale. If you have a Bible with you, or you can look it up even on your phone now in the modern technology that we have, that scripture is the result of those who faithfully and with great care made copy after copy after copy of the original autographs, all of which agree with each other with astounding accuracy and have been delivered to us so that we can read it, so that we can know God. We don't have to have an earthly priest so that we can know God or that we can learn about him. And so many little things in your life you can look back on and see how God saw you through. And what I'll say to you in closing is the faithfulness of God should inspire your faithfulness. So here's my prayer in closing. Father God, you are faithful in your nature and in all of your actions. You're faithful to your people and to keep your promises. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. The greatest example and embodiment of faithfulness that there has ever been is Jesus, our Savior. Father God, empower us by your spirit and guide us by your word to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.